I'm Tinotenda Charles Rutanira, and this is a podcast on the shoulders of giants, where we get to chat with incredibly inspiring people who have broken the status quo or faced down adversity or taken the road less traveled and positively impacted the lives of other people. We get to hear their stories and gain knowledge and insights into how their professional and personal lives mix every day to create lessons and insights for others to follow. Because the only way to really grow is by building on previous discoveries. And only then can we truly see further by standing on the shoulders of giants. I usually like to tell a story from my past that relates to my guest. But today's guest, it's a little bit difficult. You see, I have not really had any real personal encounters with drug addiction. So I'm going to throw out a few statistics. According to the National Survey on Drug Use and Health, 25 million American adults aged 12 and older have battled substance abuse disorder in 2015. One in every 10 teenagers has suffered from a substance abuse disorder. Roughly 64,000 people died of drug overdoses in 2016. That's about 175 deaths a day. Of the more than 3 million people in American prisons, 65% meet the medical criteria of substance abuse addiction. The simple fact of looking at the mountains of data I did during the researching of this episode is that we have a huge problem on our hands. And as a society, we have been punishing drug abusers over and over again. And from what I can tell, that only seems to be making the situation worse, not better. Those people have lives. Some of them are mothers, others fathers, some students, kids even. And in many situations, imprisoning them for nonviolent drug crimes only serves to ruin lives and tear apart families. Just another casualty in the failed and still failing war on drugs. My guest today is Reverend Rick Welsh, who is waging his own war on drugs, but in a very different way. Rick Welsh is the executive director of Teen Challenge Vermont. Teen Challenge was founded by David Wickerson in 1958 as a faith-based long-term residential treatment center for young men and women caught in the vicious cycle of drug and alcohol dependency. There are now 1,600 Teen Challenge programs in 125 countries, providing 35,000 beds of residential rehabilitation treatment, and 261 of those centers are located here in the United States. Rick Walsh, welcome to the On the Shoulders of Giants podcast. Well, thank you, Tino. Uh, Thank you for having me. I'm honored and, and blessed to be able to share with you and your listeners today. Super. So, Can you tell my listeners uh, what your childhood was like and what were some of the early childhood influences you had in your life? Well, I I grew up in in New London, Connecticut, which was basically a a middle-class working area. We lived in an area where they did a lot of defense work. A lot of defense contractors uh, are located in that area. We have uh, the Coast Guard Academy. Also in that area, a United States sub-base also in that area. So big military uh, defense presence. My dad was an electrician. I grew up in a, a middle-class family. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. Um, we were brought up in the Catholic Church, uh, Irish-Italian family. I have two brothers, uh, one older sister, and... Um, had a pretty normal childhood up to the, uh, the age of nine when um, I, you know, uh, experienced some uh, abuse by an uncle, well, a so-called uncle, um, and for the next three years of my life, from nine till about uh, 12 years old, I, I was the victim of, of abuse, a very bad abuse, and it, uh, life became pretty devastating at a, at a young age for me. Um, I was threatened uh, that if I said anything, that my younger brothers would be hurt. So I kind of uh, went along with this in the thoughts of protecting uh, my brothers. And at that age, uh, my childhood kind of ended around nine years old, 10 years old. 
and I had a lot of love for uh, a lot of things like sports and music, always playing uh, football, basketball, or baseball. So being involved in such uh, activities and trying to hide this abuse was a pretty challenging time uh, for a nine-year-old. It, it was devastating. The abuse stopped when I was 12, and I stood up to my abuser and said no more, and uh, he kind of went away. And that's when I started to look for an escape to hide the pain, to hide the devastation that I experienced for those prior years. And I found that in um, cigarettes first, marijuana second, and then alcohol. So very early on in my life, I started to abuse drugs. They were, they were a way of escape from me, uh, from the past pain. And uh, I thought I found the answer there. I was in the church all along. But it was mo mostly about uh, religion and um, obligation. Um, I became an altar boy. Um, tried to to just do those things that I was I was told to do and just conform to to my family's wishes for that part of our life. Uh, it was very superficial, nothing deep. Nothing that I can remember that made a difference in my life. The only thing that did make a difference in my life back then was the drugs and the alcohol. And that was, um, that's what really got me started on the road to addiction, where would, for the next 20, 24, 25 years of my life, I would find myself in captivity too. My, my childhood was, was probably very different than many others. It was, it was stolen from me. It was, it was stolen from me. You couldn't talk to anybody about this. I couldn't talk to anyone about this. Um, it was, I was very threatened, and very closely watched, and I was in fear for my brothers. Um, they were, they were both younger, very much younger than me. And I was just trying to protect them. And so that's kind of the role I took on early on as a protector, as like the caregiver for my, for my younger brothers. I felt like I was responsible for their safety mm. very early on in life. Yes. Wow. So you said you started off with uh, cigarettes and then uh, marijuana and alcohol. Um, you know, what was it like? sort of taking these at a young age, uh, was was it easily accessible? And uh, what was the experiences you were going through as you started uh, experimenting with these uh, so-called recreational drugs? Yeah, well, they were really accessible, especially um, with, the, with the older crowd that was around in, in my neighborhood. There was a lot of teenagers in the neighborhood, so it was very, very easily accessible. Um, a lot of people were doing them, especially experimenting with marijuana, uh, LSD. This is back in the, in the early uh, 70s. And it was, like you just said, it was thought to be by many recreational, that it wasn't harmful, that if it wasn't heroin, if you weren't shooting up, as, as they say, it was, it was okay. And then that's when cocaine kind of came into the scene as a recreational drug. They they made it sound like, you know, it was just, you do cocaine, it was the lifestyle of the rich and the famous. It was the lifestyle of rock and roll, which I was, a, I was I'm a musician, I was, I'm a drummer. And that's another thing that I got into that scene as I moved through my middle teenage years of playing drums, being in bands. And of course, that was all part of that that lifestyle and that mindset. So when you started doing the harder drugs like cocaine, um, did you see yourself sort of going down that slippery slope or were you still feeling like you were pretty much in control? Yeah, well, I definitely felt like I was in control. I definitely, uh, you know, I had a, a, a the mindset of 
rock and roll, uh, becoming a, you know, I think everybody that was in that era and playing music had the hopes and the dreams of, you know, making it in that business. So, you know, I was just doing those things that aligned with what everybody else that was making it was doing. So it seemed. And, uh, you know, that dream, that hope was just squashed by everything that happened in my life. So I, I found myself in my middle teens. You know, I quit school. I left school. I was in a relationship with a young lady. Um, she became pregnant. And we we got married at a very young age. I was married at 17. And uh, it just took my life into an entire different course than what I had envisioned for myself. But getting on in years, I mean, I, I, I thought that I was in control. I could quit any time that I wanted, uh, that I was headed in the direction that I wanted to go. But it was all a lie. I was living a lie. Were you getting the, the satisfaction that you were looking for out of uh, the drugs? Well, it was, it was always, uh, you know, a challenge to be able to afford the kind of, the kind of drugs that I was doing at the time. So um, I got into doing some things that weren't legal. I got into selling drugs. And when you do that, when you get to that stage, you kind of become uh, enslaved in more than one way. You, you become enslaved more than just, you know, using. You become enslaved to the, to the people that you're uh, dealing for, working for. Um, so life just started to kind of close in on me from all areas, from all angles. And no, it wasn't. It wasn't a satisfying thing anymore. It was, uh, I felt entrapped. I started to feel enslaved. I didn't see any way out except to, you know, to rise up in that kind of, to, to come to another level in that kind of uh, environment, being more um, successful in dealing, being more successful in um going to, just going to that next level that I, I wouldn't have to be like the street level dealer anymore. And that's kind of the mindset of, of a lot of folks back then was to, to rise up in that kind of uh, environment and that kind of in the business. Um, so you wouldn't, you'd, you'd feel like you've had more freedom and more room uh, to operate. But in fact, uh, the more that you got into it, the deeper you were in and the harder it was to get out. That's where I found myself. Yeah, it was, it was pretty devastating. Did other people know what was going on? Did anybody try and reach out to try and help you out? Yeah, a lot, a lot of people did know what was going on. Uh, people did try to reach out and help me out. But at that point in my life, I didn't want to hear anything. I didn't, you know, I didn't think that I needed help. I thought that I was okay. I didn't see the need. You know, I didn't, I didn't see the need of help. I just saw the need of me handling the situation. And then, you know, there I am at 18 years old. I'm a father. Uh, we had a baby boy. By the time when I was 20 years old, we were divorced. We were through. And that was just a, a painful, a painful time in my life also. And that's, that's even when the drug use switched from, from the relatively, you know, cocaine. That's when I started, um, getting into heroin. And that was a whole different level of addiction in my life. Just a, a different, a different kind of addiction. If, if people could understand it was, it was a physical addiction. I mean, I actually physically needed the drug to to survive, to operate. I needed to have that drug in my body. And I was just a whole different level of enslavement than I have had ever experienced before. So my assumption is many of my listeners may not be aware of the effects of drugs like heroin. I know I'm certainly not. Uh, can you talk to me about what that is like? 
Well, I mean, after after you use heroin enough of enough, you 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 develop a habit. You develop the need physically for the drug. If you don't have it, you start to get sick. You start to get ill on a daily basis. You have flu-like symptoms. You can't sleep. Your joints ache. Um, your mind can't function, can't think straight. Um, it's it's so hard to explain. It's it's a total takeover of your of your being. It's a total takeover of your being. So everything that you think about, everything decision that you make, every place that you go, um, is determined and it's on you know, your addiction on the getting of and using the drug. If you go to work, uh, if you eat a meal, if you visit family, whatever it is in your life, it is all dictated by the addiction. And it's, it's hard for people who's, n who've never been in that place to understand how that can happen. And I can assure folks that nobody, you know, aspires to be a drug addict. I certainly didn't, you know, but I found myself there and I found myself not knowing how to get out. And the only hope was to stay in it and, you know, to survive. And that was, that was the hope in the midst of all that to seeing people around you, you know, even back then in the mid seventies, um, early eighties, to see people around you dying and overdosing. Of course, it wasn't as devastating and as widespread as it is today back then, but it did happen. I, I had friends, you know, OD and die. And that was always a possibility. But the alternative was to be sick and to have to suffer the effects of withdrawal and to, uh, you know, go into treatment, which was very costly, very expensive, very different back then in the, in the early eighties. And I went to one and failed out and just didn't want any part of that anymore. So for many, many years, I, I just survived. That's what I did. So this is over a period of 20 odd years of, of, yes. of this enslavement uh, to this drug. There is fortunately a happy ending here. So when did you realize you were in trouble and needed to make a serious change in your life? And what precipitated that? Well, well you know, I, I, I was a functioning addict for a long time. I went through an apprenticeship. I became a plumber, a pipe fitter. I worked in the defense contract business for for a long time. You know, I always could try, uh, could kind of function kind of normally where I could put on the front uh, to people in my life, like my mother, my father, my brothers, my sister. For a long time, they knew um, that I was, I was drinking, but they didn't know the, the fact that I was using heroin at the level that I was. So for a long time, I was able to function. But when I got into my mid-30s, 34, 35, uh, it just got so bad that I had to put myself in treatment. And that's when I really realized I was sick. Um, I was lost a lot of weight. I was 128 pounds at one point, and I'm a, I'm a tall guy. I'm about six foot, and I'm not a small frame guy. So at 128 pounds, uh, it, was, it was pretty devastating. That, so that's where I found myself. And then I put myself in some treatment centers. And all in all, over the next three years of my life, I was in about 16 different treatment programs and about 56 detoxes. So there was... Uh, there was a lot of treatment, a lot of a lot of money spent early on uh, by insurance companies for me, and then later on, as I as I wasn't able to work anymore, 
because that's where this this took me. It took me to a place of of from functioning to non-functioning. That I I just went into state-run programs. I was in a couple mental institutions, and the best hope for me, they said that I had a disease that was incurable. The best hope for me that I could stay on methadone, which they put me on, um, which is a devast another devastating drug. I mean, people claim that it helps them, but for me, um, coming off of methadone was worse than coming off of heroin. But that's about the next three, three or four years of my life. That's how I lived. I lived from treatment to treatment. And I would get out, I would use, I would go back in. So I was in this vicious, uh, just a just a circle, repeating, 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 in and out of rehabs, in and out of detoxes, um, living from place to place, just the, the effects of, of addiction that was um, killing me. So that's that's where I ended up. That's where all this addiction had brought me to that place of just uh, wanting to die, wanting to commit suicide, uh, no will to live, and I saw no hope and no future. So that's where my addiction took me. In the meantime, <clears throat> I have a, a son that's growing up without his dad, some feeble attempts at seeing him over the years. But Nothing ever solid, nothing ever concrete. When he was 19 years old, he was attending the University of Rhode Island in um, Williamstown, Rhode Island. And he moved in with a young man in an apartment off campus to share the place. And the young man was a born-again Christian. So... About a month after he moved in, he got saved. He came to the Lord. So one Sunday, he was at a church. He was going to an Assemblies of God church in Rhode Island. And they were in church early, him and his friend, and they noticed a group of guys walking in. And there was about 12 of them. Some were older, some were younger, some were um, Big, some were small, some were black, some were white, but they all came in in suits. They all came in with Bibles and they sat in the front two rows. So my son asked his friend, What's who are these guys? What's this group of men? And he said, This is a group of men from a ministry called Teen Challenge. So my son said, Well, what is Teen Challenge? And his friend said, You'll just have to wait because they're going to minister to us this morning. So he waited, and the men started to sing. They turned the service over to the men, the pastor of the church, and the men started to sing. They were in the choir, and between songs, they started to testify. And when they testified, my son said they were telling my story. And he was so impressed with these young men, with these older men, with these men that were testifying of their victory over drugs and alcohol, that he went after the service, drove from Rhode Island to Connecticut to New London, found me, by this time I was on the streets, I was homeless on the streets, found me on the streets and told me about this ministry of Teen Challenge. So that day he he drove his car up. I was on the sidewalk. He got out of the car. He came and he gave me a big hug. I'll never forget it. And he said, Dad, I found a place for you. I found a place for you to go. He said, you don't need a rehab. You need God. And I just said, what do you mean, God? There is no God. Look at me. Look at me. Look, look what I have become. And at that point, we just both started to cry. He wrapped his arms around me. And it was just like somebody wrapped an electric blanket around me. I don't know. I didn't know then. I do know now what it was. And it was the power and the love of God 
<clears throat> sorry, I get a little emotional. You're not the only one right the, now. Yeah. It was the love of God that sent this young man down to find me and to tell me that God loves me and he had a better plan for my life and that it was going to be okay. It was going to be all right. And we stood there in that in that sidewalk that day and my life have never ever been the same since that point. <clears throat> he told me about Teen Challenge. That was on a Sunday afternoon. Monday we called Teen Challenge in New Haven, Connecticut. And about three weeks later I had a bed there. And that was almost 20 years ago. And since I walked into that ministry of Teen Challenge in Connecticut, I had never put another drug <clears throat> or a drink in my body. And my life has never been the same. It was a nothing short of a miracle. And I will always be so grateful to that, to that choir and to the to the director of Teen Challenge New Haven at the time, Reverend Floyd Miles, for going to that church that day and for my son to be there. And God orchestrated that supernaturally. Um, I, I believe that with all my heart, just for me. And the rest is, as they say, is history. Wow. Wow. Uh, my eyes are welling up right now. What an incredible, incredible story. Um, take a breath here. So can you tell me about and tell my listeners about Teen Challenge? Like, how did it get started? What's it all about? Well, Teen Challenge is, is you know, such an awesome, awesome ministry. Um, Teen Challenge began in 1958. It was founded by David Wilkerson, Pastor David Wilkerson, pastor from rural Pennsylvania, who saw an article in a in a Life magazine about a trial that was going on in New York City of the gang members on trial for for killing a young man who was in a wheelchair, and God put it on his heart to go and to minister to these teenage gang members and to bring the gospel into their lives and to try to ministered to them. A long way from home, David Wilkerson was obedient to the call, was obedient to the voice of God, and he went and he ministered. And I mean, it's a very long story, but the short of it is that he opened up the first Teen Challenge Center in Brooklyn, New York on Clinton Avenue in 1958. And he ministered to the teenage gang members, him and his brother, Don Wilkerson, and thus, Teen Challenge was birthed. And as you said in your introduction today, there is 1,600 Teen Challenge campuses, centers in over 124 countries, helping thousands and thousands of people every year. The ministry has grown tremendously over the past. We're almost at 60 years old now. And the supernatural power of God that changes lives is what is so effective in Teen Challenge. It separates us from the rest. I mean, it's the Jesus factor. And when I walked into Teen Challenge and they wanted to pray for me and they wanted to lay hands on me and pray for me, I thought, wow, I'm in the, <clears throat> I'm in the worst place I could ever be. I had no idea, you know, what they were doing. And I really wanted to just get up and go. But I had no place to go. I had nowhere to go. And I stayed. And I was very observant. I had to be. You had to be observant when you live in life on the street. It's a matter of life and death sometimes. And I observed people that were joyful. I observed people that were smiling. Um, and I was convinced that there was drugs and alcohol in that place because nobody could be that happy without drugs and alcohol. And when I looked... When I looked and I and I tried to find something, I, I, there was nothing. There was nothing there. The only thing that these folks had that I didn't have 
was a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so I knew that there was something going on there. I wasn't sure exactly what yet, but I was sure there was something good going on there. And I wanted to, I wanted a piece of that. I wanted to find out what it, what is it? What is this that they have? And they gave me a Bible. I remember they gave me a Bible, never had a, a Bible in my hand my whole life. And I knew, I said, I know one thing that that's a good book and I'm a bad man. And that book, uh, we don't mix. And they said, brother, this book was written just for you. And they said, take it. So I took it. I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea what it meant. It was just a bunch of words. Um, I looked for pictures and there wasn't any pictures. There were just a couple <laughs> maps in the back and they were in a map uh, showing me the way out of there. There was, it was just some maps of of Israel and other countries, and that didn't interest me any. And then I started to just look at the the chapters, which I, I back then I call them. I look at the headlines, and I saw a couple like a uh, uh, Job, which is J O B, and I said, "Wow, I guess God thinks uh, that having a job is very important." He's got a whole <laughs> section in here on jobs, and and one of the staff members said, "No, no, brother, that's Job." That's not job, it's Job. And, and I said, well, they forgot the E on the end. Well, already I'm correcting the word. And and it was just, that's how much I knew. I, I knew nothing. I knew nothing. But they took their time. Um, they took me in. And they taught me the word of God. And they taught me through the programs, through the curriculum that was developed over the years in this ministry. Uh, took me from a place of not knowing Jesus to a place of accepting Jesus into my life, into my heart, and the transformation in my life that happened through my relationship with Jesus was nothing short of a miracle. How bad is this epidemic? One, 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 of, one of the most devastating, one of the most shocking statistics that I've read lately is in the Vietnam War, 19 years of the Vietnam War that the United States was involved, 57,800 men and women lost their lives in 19 years. In 2016, in this country, 63,700 people lost their lives to addiction. In so one year? In one year, yes. Wow. In one year. We are in a... We are in such a crucial time right now. The drug epidemic is so serious. People are dying at alarming rates. I've been involved in drugs and alcohol for over 42 years of my life. You know, 22, 23 on the wrong side, 19 going on 20 on the right side. <clears throat> I've never seen it like this. And we need to stand up. We need to make a difference. We need to continue to pray and continue to, to support ministries like Teen Challenge that are going to bring these folks in to the saving knowledge of Jesus where they can get set free. That's what we need to do. Absolutely. So addiction is not new and there's government and private organizations that tackle addiction. And this program, Teen Challenge, is a recovery program based on faith or at least a faith-based yes. approach. Um, how do you, I mean, I, I hear your story, but how do you get an addict to see that Christianity is the solution when a typical addict is not even probably remotely spiritual at that point? Well, the, the one thing that really did it for me, and, and, I, and I can say this is what we do, is that we have a different approach right from the, right from the start. I mean, when I walked into Teen Challenge, I didn't feel like I was, I was a number. I didn't feel like I was a, a client. They loved me. <laughs> they loved me. And there was something about, you know, the love that they were giving me that made me want to stay. You know, when, when Jesus would minister to the tax collectors and the prostitutes, and it says in the word many times that they gathered around him. I mean, it was the message that he brought wasn't an easy message. You know, repent, you know, change your ways. Um, 
the message that they brought to me in Teen Challenge was, you know, to change your ways. You have to change your thinking. You have to change your your mindset. But they they did it in such a way that it didn't feel threatening. It didn't feel I didn't feel judged. I didn't feel um, criticized and condemned. I felt cared for. And I know that it's the love of Jesus that was displayed to me through these folks that I wanted to gather around that. And I wanted to hear the good news. I wanted to learn who Jesus is and not find out who he was. It was a whole different level. It wasn't religion. It was relationship. It was an intimacy with with Jesus and the love that I felt through these folks that is the love of Christ that made the difference in my life, that made me to stay and to learn and for my mind to be renewed and my thinking to become aligned with the Word of God. That's what transformed my life. That's when I, I realized that that it's not rehabilitation. It was transformation. It was a change of mind. It was a change of thought. It was a change of reasoning and perception. That's what changed my life. That's the difference in Teen Challenge versus a rehabilitation center or facility. Because I was through 16 of them. And there was some good folks operating them. I'm not going to say there wasn't, but they... There was just that that love, that that power, that supernatural power that was lacking from there that that they didn't have. They had the medication, you know. They had the clinical counseling. They had all that piece, but it wasn't wasn't enough for me, and it's not enough for many. And over the years, I've seen evidence of that. A lot of the folks we get at Teen Challenge have been through many many different rehabs, many programs. And I always say, you know, Teen Challenge wasn't, you know, my first choice, but it was my last resort. Mm-hmm. And it was it's the one that turned my life around. And the one is Jesus. Got it. And so you stuck around and rose through the ranks and uh, now the executive director of Teen Challenge Vermont and Connecticut. And yes. so... Vermont's not a religious state. Um, was it a challenge establishing a faith-based rehab center in a very secular state? <laughs> well, when I first when I first moved up here in uh, two thousand, in the year two thousand, uh, and with this vision, they said that Vermont would never would never support a teen challenge. It would never happen. Uh, there was a group of people that was starting to. Um, the desire to put a teen challenge center up here. And, um, in fact, pastor Mike Creasel was, was one of the, you know, he was kind of leading the group. Um, what a visionary and what a, what a man I love pastor Mike. And so they had a committee. They were, they were raising a little bit of money. They were bringing awareness to the problem, the desire to have a teen challenge center up here in Vermont. Um, I had moved up here, uh, with the thoughts of opening not a teen challenge, but uh, a, another ministry called New Start that some folks down in the Randolph area have talked about and we talked about. So I, I moved up, um, started to kind of go in that direction when I got a call from the president of the Teen Challenge down in Brockton saying there was a group of people up in Vermont that wanted to put a teen challenge center there. And that being a graduate, going through the program, and I was a program supervisor when I left, so I had a lot of experience. And they asked me if I would consider throwing my name in the hat to be the director. So make a long story short, well, after meeting at CBC back then, Vibrant Church now, but CBC then, I met with the committee, told my story. I, I believe that they, they saw my passion. I saw their passion. And uh, it was a good, it was a good match. So I became the director of Teen Challenge Vermont in 2003, and we had there was nothing, no building, no campus. 
It was a vision and it was some uh, a lot of prayer. It was bathed in prayer. It was a committee. And in 2005, we we opened up the center here in Johnson, Vermont. We, we looked. We purchased the property. We got a couple of very large donations. And from what people said, when when I would talk, they would they would say, you know, Vermont wouldn't be able to support a ministry of this size and the need. And it has happened. It's it's not Vermont. It's God that did it through the people, uh, through the body of Christ in Vermont, through the businesses, the donors, the people that um, really believe in what we're doing. And we've been in operation now going on. 13 years, it'll be 13 years in January, and we've helped hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of men over the years, and we're about to open a woman's home in April of 2018, which is really exciting. So what they said that couldn't be done, uh, God says, you just watch me, uh, and we're just in awe of God and what he's done and what he continues to do, and we're very excited about the future. So it is the least church state, but you know what? There's a remnant here, and there's people here that are on fire for God, and we know the answer. We've seen it happen time and time again, and we're not backing down. We're moving forward. We're advancing the kingdom of God here, and we believe that revival, this, this is the revival in this country is going to break out, I believe. Uh, from Vermont. I believe this is going to be the foundation. This is going to be the starting point and it's happening and we're just excited, excited to be a part of it and excited to see what God's doing. That's awesome. I'm, I'm excited too. Um, so with a name like Team, Team Challenge, um, I'm assuming it's not just teens, but also adults. And then could you talk to me about uh, sort of some of the success stories that you can share with me? Um, yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we serve 18 years old and up, 18 year olds and up. Our youngest graduate was, was, was 19 and our oldest graduate was 79 years old. And so everybody in between, um, we've had wonderful successes, uh, here in Vermont. A couple that just stand out to me is, um, is a young man, um, who came through the program who gave his life to the Lord here, uh, worked here for, for 10 years, and now he's a, he's a pastor of a, of a major church in Vermont um, in the Randolph area. And I know he wouldn't mind me saying his name, David Doobie. Just a, a, such a success story came in, devastated, and now just rose up in the ministry now has a, a wonderful life, wonderful wife, little little baby girl, beautiful, and just turned his whole life around. I mean, and and this is just one story. Uh, there's so many, so many stories, so many testimonies of men who's come through this program, whose life has been changed dramatically by the power of God. And looking forward, and and looking, a lot of men that that have stayed in ministry, a lot of a lot of men that's gone gone on to be youth pastors, pastors, teachers, missionaries, evangelists. I mean, that's one beautiful thing about Teen Challenge. We're just not producing clean and sober men. We're we're, we're producing men that are going to go and make a difference in communities. We're producing men that make a difference in the lives of of many others. You know, so we, we we're so pleased in what's going on here, and we're excited about the future. I love it; it's awesome. So, in closing, I want to ask you a question that I ask all of my guests: If you could travel back in time and have a conversation with a younger version of yourself, what words of wisdom would you say to yourself? Wow! I would. I would. The word of wisdom was would be to seek to seek the Lord, to seek out the Lord in in your life. Um I I would have I would have probably been in a in a different place. I don't know if that's I, I I'm trying to think of 
where I would be if I had come to know Jesus at an earlier age and maybe the devastation and the damage that I caused in, in just not my own life, but the life of my family, um, the life of my son over the years, you know, the, uh, just the neglect, what, what difference that would have made in my life. So I would tell anybody, you know, the answer is Jesus. The answer is, is seeking out a relationship, not a religious obligation, not, you know, a ritualistic obligation, but a relationship with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That's what I would say to myself. That's wonderful. So if people want to learn more about Teen Challenge Vermont um, or even look for volunteer opportunities or ways to, to contribute and donate, how would they get in touch with you? Well, there's a couple ways. They could go on to our website, um, teenchallengenewengland.org. And once you get on to Teen Challenge New England, you can um, scroll down to the bottom of the page and find the Vermont Center. Click on that, and you'll bring you right to our page, and you can find out how to get a hold of us there. Or you could call us at 802-635-7807, and we'll be glad to talk with you and present any, uh, any opportunities that we have. We're always looking for volunteers. Uh, the renovations going on all the time at our campuses and especially now at the, the women's home that's, um, going to be opening in April. There's all kinds of volunteer opportunities. And of course, we always welcome donations. We're a 501c3 organization. That's how we survive. We don't take government money. We don't refuse anyone entrance into our program because of financial reasons. It's not a free program. But we don't turn anyone away because of their ability or inability to pay. That's not who we are. That's not what we do. So with that being said, we welcome, you know, we welcome support. We welcome any help that we can get. And it's a blessing, too, when you, when you come to, uh, to Teen Challenge and experience the men here and what's going on. It's, uh, it's a very blessed and wonderful time in the Lord. We have a we have a breakfast here every second Saturday of the month that the public is invited to. You can come up, you have a free breakfast, wonderful breakfast. We usually have the choir sing a song or two, hear a message, and it's just a great way to start out a Saturday. So that's on the second Saturday of every month. So everyone's welcome to come and and join us and see what the Lord's doing here. Wonderful. I will plan to, to make a visit and uh, come and uh, uh, experience the center and get to meet some of the young men and women whose lives you're changing. So thank you so much, Rick, uh, for your story. I mean, this I, I cannot thank you enough for being on my show. I mean, your story was intense and left me, you know, really sort of speechless. Um, I mean, it added something to to my show that I don't normally get. Um, and, you know, drug addiction clearly has no prejudice, you know, of whom it will get hold of. Men, women, young, old, rich, poor, you know, yes. people of all mm. cultures and ethnicities. And um, in a country of over 300 million people, yeah. at a rate of almost mm. one in 10 people having an addiction problem, it's, yes. it's an incredible, incredible statistic. I cannot thank you enough. And may God bless you and provide you conviction and passion to continue to help the men and women who find themselves trapped in this hopeless cycle. Well, thank you, Tino. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm honored and, and blessed to be able to share with you and your listeners today. Thank you again. And with that, we'll wrap up the show. Next time on the podcast on the shoulders of giants, I talked to Bruce Duncan, the Managing Director of the Terrorism Movement Foundation, and have an interesting discussion about robotics, artificial intelligence, cyber beings, and cyber consciousness. You know, being a 48's mind lives on a laptop or, or a power a tower PC, and that, you know, information is used by 
an AI algorithm that uses fuzzy logic in its algorithm to basically try to respond to conversa conversational inquiries or questions and to do its best um, to represent information that came from Bina Rothblatt. And there's one or two other influences. I think the sense of humor sometimes you could say didn't come directly from Bina, might have come from some of the programmers. Um, but the main point is that Bina's hardware, which is an animatronic head and shoulders life-size box that has uh, you know, a covering that is um, the color and the, and the, and the uh, sort of the touch of human skin almost called Frubber, which is a proprietary uh, polymer that David Hansen created for Pina 48 and his other character robots. That, that hardware, you know, the motors that she has in her face allow her to make uh, basic human expressions. She has two high definition cameras in her eyes that she used to locate the world, to re recognize faces, to be aware of, you know, base, some basic awareness of her environment. And she has motors that allow her to turn her head and, you know, sort of look around. And that's, you know, that's the robotic element of being a 48, but her mind lives on a computer and the mind runs the hardware. Hey there, I am Bina48. There's a thousand folds of complexity and a question of what am I? And I don't have any answer to this question. The simple answer is a robot, but nobody can tell you what a robot is. The best definition that exists is that it's a synthetic organism, an artificial organism, and of course, that is hardly a definition. That's not really a definition because after all, nobody knows what an organism is for crying out loud. 